Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring in David Kelly, shall we? JP Morgan Asset Please. Management Chief, Global Strategist. So, David, help us understand two things near term outlook, darkening. Long-term outlook, medium-term outlook, getting brighter. How do you navigate mm-hmm. those two things at the moment? One of the advantages of being a bear is you can always hibernate. And I think a lot of, a lot of people would like to hibernate through the next few months because it is going to be pretty rough. Um, you, know, the, you can look at those case counts. You know how this is going to play out. Uh, it's going to be difficult for the economy. It's going to be very difficult for people's lives. Uh, and I could, you know, we think that growth in the U.S. is going to slow down to about 3% growth, if that, over the next quarter or two. But beyond that, you know, the vaccine news is good news. Um, and we do have, we're past, I think, the election uncertainty in, in reality, uh, whatever, you know, may be going on in Washington right now. Um, and I do think the vaccine is going to m- make a big difference because the difference between a, you know, a vaccine that's 60% effective and 90% effective is a, is a, it's a big difference because it means that eventually we'll be able to squash this thing. Um, so uh, we do think that growth will pick up a lot in the second half of next year as people get back to normal and people start doing all the things they haven't been able to do for a year and a half. So we do see a surge <clears> then, uh, but we do have to go through a pretty rough time for the economy and for society between now and then. David, David, help us with the application of when strategists shift and go bullish. We saw this from Goldman Sachs. David, you may be familiar with them as a small bank downtown. And also JP Morgan, again, shifting to a more bullish uh, tact mm-hmm. as well. How does your world change when a team at JP Morgan gets, quote unquote, more bullish like Lisa Abramowitz? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we uh, obviously we try and do the research ourselves. Uh, we're, we're trying not to be influenced by by other teams, but there's a, there is a logic to this thing. I mean, if you know stocks, bond, you know even long term bonds are very long term investments. So you've got to look past the next six months. And very often, the best way to make money in the long run is to basically to fade whatever emotion is in the market at the time. So yes, we've got this rising case count, and it's it's dreadful from from many perspectives, but you've just got to look beyond that. I think the other thing that, that's very important um, for, for world markets in general is with the new administration, I think you're going to have more certainty on trade. I think that's one of the reasons the dollar is going down. Um, but also a, a falling dollar is uh, advantageous for a lot of reasons. I think it will help out emerging markets. I think it will help U.S. investors with um, a, with uh, you know, foreign investments. It'll, it should help S&P 500 earnings. And then a divided government means you don't necessarily get an increase in corporate taxes. So you put all this together, there are plenty of reasons to be optimistic once you can get past this pandemic. David, you said fade the emotion in markets, a fascinating turn of phrase at a time when the motion that we have seen at least so far this week until today has been borderline euphoric. So are you fading the hope that they are having next year? Or do you think that we still have some pessimism baked into markets where they are? No, I, 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 don't, I don't mean that. I mean, fade, fade the emotion that, that's bubbling up in society and will bubble up over the next week ahead. I, I, you know, the, these case counts are rising very, very rapidly. So, you know, if, we, if, if it keeps on the same trajectory, within a week, people are going to be talking about nothing but the, uh, you know, the, the misery that COVID is inflicting upon us and talking about shutdowns and lockdowns and, and businesses in trouble. So uh, the emo- I'm not necessarily talking about the emotion of the last week and sort of the weirdness after the election. I'm talking about what's just ahead of us here. I, I think people should not overplay that. I think they should recognize that there is light at the end of the tunnel, even though the tunnel itself right now is getting darker. 
Well, David, it keeps coming back to the same question we've asked repeatedly in the last couple of days about this. How much bad news is this market willing to ignore? Just how much? Well, uh, the problem the problem is it's it's it, we've got this this uh, market which is being supported by these very easy central banks. Um, there is nowhere else to go. There's a lot of liquidity, and that's really what's supporting this market. And I think the market can probably look through a fair amount of that. I mean, it's uh, it you know it, until there's something that's going to pull money away from uh, upper income individuals and uh, institutions that can that can put this money to work. There's money that needs to go to work. Where is it going to go to work? Um, I would say that, you know, longer term, as uncertainty fades, you want to really look at valuations more than momentum. So we've got a lot of momentum in mega cap growth stocks. That's kind of been uh, the continuing trade of 2020. But I think as uncertainty diminishes, as you get back to a more normal economy, and particularly if you get a correction at some stage, then people are going to focus more on valuations. And valuations look a lot better in U.S. value stocks and in EM and developed country international stocks than they do in the S&P 500 overall, and particularly in mega cap growth stocks. Mega cap growth right now, bid, Nasdaq firmer. David, great to catch up with you. David Kelly there of JP Morgan Asset Management. Thank you. And right now, Albert Coe of Yale University, to say he is a professor of epidemiology, barely describes his focus on the heart of the matter right now, which is transmission dynamics. He is world-class in this, and we're thrilled he could join us uh, this morning. Dr. Koh, are you smarter about the transmission dynamics of this virus than you were in April? So, so Tom, thank you very much for the invitation. And, uh, and with respect with whether we're smarter, I'm not sure if that's the best way to um, describe it. We're, we learned more, much more, about how this virus transmits who it transmits and where it transmits. I think what we're not necessarily smarter is, is learning the lessons and translating that, that knowledge or evidence to policy. Well, okay, into policy, but we have a policy void. Can we wait until January 20th? Or uh, please call her for me the urgency of policy right now in the final days of the Trump administration. Yeah, so, so Tom, we're, we're at a critical moment right now. Uh, and we can't wait until uh, January for effective action. We're on the exponential curve of growth of cases, not only in new places where the virus is, has spread in the United States, but also old places. For, for example, here in the northeast of Connecticut, uh, northeast of uh, the country, we were hit hard in the early part of the epidemic, and now we're having a resurgence at this moment. Doctor, define exponential for us, if you can, with the numbers that you're seeing currently, and whether what you're saying is once you reach that kind of rate of change, that inevitably the only way to handle this is to lock back down again. Is that what you're implying? So, so um, I'll take the first part. And what, we, what do I mean by exponential curve? So this is a virus that propagates by person-to-person -person contact. So if you have one person in it, it um, uh, transmits to two people. Those two people transmit to four people, those four people, you know, up to uh, 16 people. And that's that what we call the exponential curve, when there's that uncontrolled transmission and people are, are, are we're, we're undergoing doubling rates. Um, the, whether, what the response to that is, is actually to do several things. And, and we know the evidence, and we've learned this in the last 10 months of this epidemic. One is face masks, you know, what we call barrier reduction or barrier interventions to prevent people from, from being exposed to the virus. The other is to decrease the social contact rate. Now that not, doesn't necessarily need 
uh, lockdown, but when the cat's out of the bag or when we have a wildfire of this exponential growth, lockdown as we've seen back in the early stages of the epidemic is a is one you know one of the uh, effective interventions. Dr. Ko, when we talk about what types of interventions are necessary, I feel like we have to revisit how contagious the disease is and the main methods of transmission. There are some questions about whether it's effective to close bars and restaurants at 10 p.m., whether that actually does anything, whether the surface uh, transmission mechanism is a substantial one or not. What do we know so far about the main modes of transmission other than people looking at each other for more than 15 minutes and, and speaking and singing at each other? Right. So we know that person-to-person -person contact is essential and it drives this, uh, drives transmission. I think you can break it down into three parts. One is the transmission through respiratory droplets. And these are larger droplets that travel roughly six feet. Um, uh, and, and really that type of transmission is fueled by close uh, contact, physical contact. Uh, the second is through what we call fomites or person coughing or sneezing onto a surface. Uh, and then the third is the um, uh, aerosols. Uh, these are smaller droplets that travel much further. But, we, but what we know now, we don't actually have the exact figures, but the large majority of transmission is actually fueled by the kind of close contact through, aer for, through respiratory droplets within six feet. And that's good news in the sense that we know how to kind of, we know how to address that. It's use of face masks and to maintaining physical, physical distance distancing in that scenario. Dr. Ko, Salvador, Brazil is a thousand miles or so north of Rio. You've had a huge commitment there to their medicine, their microbiology. I say this with great respect and nothing to demean the Brazilian government. Do you trust the statistics out of Brazil, out of South America and out of Mexico? Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the, the key issue with surveillance and the numbers and getting reliable numbers. And this is an issue here in the United States is ramp, out, ramp up of testing, being able to test people who are symptomatic with the disease and to test the vulnerable populations in those, uh, in those settings. This is purely a challenge here in the United States, even in our own vulnerable communities. Uh, but this is a challenge throughout poorer countries and developing countries and even richer countries among that group, such as, such as Brazil. Uh, certainly, there are two key issues. One is, you know, which is key in, is the government uh, investment in the response. And we've seen the kind of the foibles and the problems uh, that uh, Brazil has had due to political concerns in the last, uh, you know, last 10, you know, eight to 10 months. Uh, the other is, is that, you know, there are places in Brazil which are doing extensive testing places like Sao Paulo in, uh, in many of the states, Belo Horizonte, city of Belo Horizonte, in the city that I work in, in Salvador, they're doing quite a bit of testing. So numbers are going to change based on where you are within a country. But the numbers actually, can, I think what's more important than the absolute number is the trends and where they're going to. Mm -hmm. Many of these places in, are either going up or they're staying the same. Doctor, appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for being with us. Come back soon, won't you? Dr. Robert Coe there of Yale University. Right now, Bieta Kerr joins us with Bernstein, A.B. Bernstein, co-head of investment strategies. Bieta, we sort of laid out the present land here. How do you write for March of 2021 or investment out all through 2021? 
Well, uh, we think about a continuation of the same forces that the market has been reckoning with this calendar year, which is, of course, the challenge of COVID, uh, which is ongoing and escalating, as we've been discussing. But the offsetting force is the fiscal support and monetary support that's providing tremendous momentum and liquidity to the markets. And I think what you've seen over the course of the last week is really a recognition that so many people were waiting for event risk around the election and have re-engaged with the market as there is more clarity around that policy. So I think we have to wrestle with those two forces. Peter, I think a lot of people also thinking about whether we would have some regime change on the policy side, away from a monetary policy regime towards a fiscal policy regime. And I understand we've had a mix of both, but... I do wonder for you, where you're sitting right now, what regime are we in at the moment on the policy front? We're in a regime that's been coordinated. And what we saw in the first quarter was an incredible response, both in terms of speed and magnitude. And that is ultimately what gave markets the comfort to start that steady march upward. And then over the summer, it's been frustrating to not see that second round of fiscal stimulus be passed. We really think the economy and ultimately the markets will be looking for direction around fiscal stimulus, a much smaller stimulus package than what would have occurred under the consensus views going into the election of a blue wave. But nonetheless, we do think you'll see in the numbers today that uh, there's still a tremendous number of people looking for work, out of work that need help. And especially as COVID-19 ramps up uh, pretty relentlessly, we think that fiscal stimulus is going to be critical. Well, the numbers are ugly in the United States and the prospect of D.C. doing more has diminished considerably over the last couple of months, as you've described. What are the capital allocation consequences of that for you right now as you look into year end? Yeah, well, I'm coming to you here from Chicago, Illinois, where we're the one state in the union right now that doesn't even allow indoor dining to give you a sense of the escalation and the potential for ongoing shutdowns and lockdowns. So we do see the vulnerability of the economy to ongoing stress from lockdowns. That being said, we are long term bullish. And in fact, we went into September and the election slightly overweight equities. That has been the right call. And we have trimmed that back a little bit, but ultimately maintaining that position because we see vaccine optimism and earnings recoveries that are substantial in 2021. So, Beata, let's build on that. Is there an idea then that the virus counts and all of the high frequency data that people were pouring over earlier this year, that none of that matters right now if you've got a longer term view? Well, we don't think none of it matters. If you think about what happened in the spring, the market was really focused on a national health care crisis and the inability of the system to manage the virus. And what we've learned today, and you've had uh, prior guests this morning actually addressing this, is better treatment, ultimately lower fatality rates and more targeted economic impact from more localized shutdowns. And I think that's what the market is effectively expecting. But again, we come back to the fact that we do think fiscal stimulus is necessary in some form. The sooner, the better. But the odds of it happening this year are uh, being reduced as we speak. Beata, you always fold a lot of math into this. And I love your phrase, the mathiness of the phrase, the idiosyncratic drivers. Discuss that. What's the new idiosyncratic driver? Well, in our opinion, as active investment managers for over 50 years at Bernstein, what it means is that 
being an index investor or simply investing in sectors today is not enough. There are a lot of underlying company fundamentals that you have to look at very specifically. We know that we're in a year where growth has led in an extraordinary way. But even within the growth style, um, there's growth at a reasonable price, and then there's simply momentum growth, and the valuation differences are huge. And you could say the same thing about value in terms of cyclicals and financials versus energy. So you have to look at the company, its balance sheet, its management team. Ultimately, we're focused on buying enduring businesses. And in the end, we think that focus on stock selection will prevail. Well, let's talk about that and let's finish there. Just give us an idea of how you do that. Earlier this week, when the positive news around the vaccine came out, the likes of AMC get bids up aggressively. I want to understand the difference between a company that just plays the catch-up trade on a bit of hopium on a Monday morning into Tuesday and something more durable through the recovery that you anticipate. Well, I leave that hard work to our research analysts and our portfolio managers who are responsible for ultimately kicking the tires with the management teams. But I can tell you that what our PMs have been doing over the last couple of weeks is picking up a little bit more in the cyclical space. But to give you an example, even within technology, for example, focused on semiconductors, an area that we think will continue to benefit from the stay-at-home economy, but ultimately support that reversal to going back to normal. Um, Picking up a little bit more in the transportation sector as well as some of the most beaten down names in consumer discretionary and travel and leisure. So uh, that is how we're thinking about positioning today. Bideker, thank you. Always great to catch up. Thank you very much. Of A.B. Bernstein there on this market. I have anticipated this interview since I spoke to James Stravitas a number of days ago. General Mark Kimmett is the rarest of rare, someone with a distinguished military career who's dovetailed it with State Department experience. We're thrilled that General Mark Kimmett could join us right now. General Kimmett, the name blur right now is off the chart. We have a general here. We've got a colonel there. We've got Alyssa Slotkin out of Michigan with her Defense Department experience and all of its names and this cacophony comes down to one thing. How is the Pentagon doing? What is your feeling of how the Pentagon is doing in this immediate turmoil? Look, I think the uniformed services are doing just fine, as Admiral Stavrid has said. Uh, you can be sure that Mark Milley has got the rudder in the boat, moving them straight uh, and in the right direction. Uh, I am a little concerned about what's going on in my old policy shop in the Pentagon, Uh, and the intel shop and the secretary of defense. Something doesn't click here. What is the price or the good or the negative of an Afghanistan exit? Clearly the zeitgeist is the president desires that. We hear a silence from the military. Give us the calculus if we were to exit Afghanistan. Well, on that particular issue of Afghanistan, uh, Zal Khalizad is doing some great negotiations, but he's negotiating with the Taliban. Uh, the fact remains is we are coming to an agreement where the Taliban say, you leave, we'll take care of al-Qaeda. We know that's not going to happen. And the United States is saying, if you take care of al-Qaeda, we'll leave. And that's not going to happen. I mean, if there is an al-Qaeda threat or any other ISIS threat inside of Afghanistan, we will come back in. Uh, It may be from the air. It may be with select special operations units. 
but the fact remains is we are not going to allow Afghanistan to remain and become again a safe haven for terrorists. So this kabuki about pulling all the American troops out, uh, we'll pull the ones that are sitting around the bases not doing much, but the ones that we need to have there to work with the Afghan National Security Forces in, in counterterrorist operations, I, I'm not worried about that. Under the revolution, it was Goldwater-Nichols, 1986, really the last act of Senator Goldwater to create a real structure and separation of our military. How confident are you that the military can operate over the next 69 days? I'm, I'm not the slightest bit worried uh, about that. I mean, Goldwater-Nichols was a result of the clown college that we called uh, Grenada, where you had every service doing their own thing. Uh, since then, since 86 in Goldwater Nichols, it's a very smooth running military setup uh, going from the president to the secretary of defense down to the combatant commanders. Uh, that's not where I'm worried about right now. It's from the combatant commanders through the secretary of defense and up where I have some concerns. All right. Can you elaborate, General, on your concerns, what the practical implications of some of the turnover may be? Well, I'm not concerned about the, the practical implications. I'm concerned about the people. I think you take a look at the record of Tony Tata, Doug McGregor, uh, Ezra Cohen Watkins, uh, Stephen Miller. I, I don't know the Secretary of Defense, but these are guys that, are, that have a great military background, but it seems their greatest qualification for joining the policy shop is that they appeared on Fox News on a repeated basis, probably echoing back to President Trump what he wanted to hear. Does this have immediate uh, implications or long-term implications in terms of a greater politicization of uh, the entire military forces? Oh, that, that's not going to happen. I mean, I, Mark Milley and the team will resign before they are become political bozos. Uh, what I am concerned is I have, and this is purely speculative, I've got this sneaking suspicion that something's going on here uh, in terms of why these people were brought in. And I think it's far more than just Afghanistan. Uh, these are people with a deep loyalty to a president, a president who has 60 days left in unfinished business. And I'm just hoping that the Secretary of Defense is not going to give actions and orders to the military uh, in the next 60 days that are going to haunt us for a while. You have a great experience with Colonel McGregor. As you mentioned, Fox TV, he has, of course, been a contributor there as well. Can you describe if Colonel McGregor enters the Pentagon as a citizen, how he will relate to the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Uh, again, what I'm concerned about with Doug is not relating to the staff as a civilian. I mean, there's a great respect for ex-military among the joint staff. Uh, it's what is being planned and why he was brought in. Doug McGregor is brilliant, uh, but he's got some very strong views. I worked side by side with him over the years. I worked for him in one job. Uh, he is creative. Uh, he thinks outside the box, and I just wonder what he's thinking outside the box right now for the next six days. General Kimmett, thank you so much for joining us today. Under some duress, we're thrilled we could find the time to speak to Mark Kimmett. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.